Welcome to Tax Wrap, the podcast of Tax and Super Australia. Each fortnight, we present news and insights to tax and SMSF practitioners. If you've got any questions, comments or even suggestions, get in touch at podcast at taxandsuperaustralia.com.au. Hi listeners, welcome to the Tax Wrap Podcast, episode 198. I'm your host, Steve Burnham. Now, this episode, we uh, uh, have the pleasure of speaking with Dana Fleming, who is the ATO's Assistant Commissioner for the SMSF segment. Okay, Dana, thanks for taking the time to speak to us. Thanks, Steve. Glad to, glad to join you today. That's great. It's um, always good to get the get uh, go to the source, as it were, uh, about SMSFs. We have uh, quite a few SMSF members who are both trustees and um, service providers. So, okay, um, yeah. We have both spectrums, or top and lower and higher spectrums of the uh, the knowledge base uh, as, as members. So um, can you tell us, Donna, uh, with respect to SMSFs, what the ATO focus is at the present? Yeah, so um, we have a articulated program of work, which we started uh, last year, FY19, and which will continue on into the FY20. Uh, so the key areas that we're focused on are lodgement, making sure that trustees lodge their returns. Uh, the next sort of key focus area, which is a new one for us, was the top 100 SMSF, so looking at the biggest 100. Mm. Then uh, a big focus for us has been illegal early release, so taking your money out before you've met a condition of release and promoters associated with that as well. And we have our top 100 auditors and high-risk auditor program because we are, as a lot of people don't realise, mm-hmm. co-regulators of auditors with ASIC. Oh, I see, yeah. Yeah. And the last and not least by any means, Steve, is our regulatory contraventions program, which uh, deals with all the contraventions of the CIS Act that are reported to us by auditors. Okay, I see. You you mentioned first up there was the non-lodgement. I I wouldn't have thought that would be a big problem, but it it obviously is. Yeah, it's a really critical focus area for us, Steve, because if we don't get uh, the lodgement of the annual return, we don't have assurance of two things. One, that they're actually able to meet their compliance obligations yeah. and are doing so. It's a good sign that they're participating in the system and keeping their it. stuff up to date. Yeah. yeah, And we also don't have assurance that they've had an annual audit done, which is another critical part of us for the system, which is where auditors obviously review our compliance with the CISA Act and report to us obligations as a, um, breaches of those obligations to us yeah, as um, part of their independent annual audit report to right. us. Right. Do, do many SMS not lodge? Yeah, I mean, it, it doesn't sound great. It's about 80% do lodge on time, right. um, roughly, and about 20% don't. But that's actually lots better than the whole population. So I, I always say it's important <laughs> to put things in context. Our yeah. SMSF population are actually one of the highest lodgement populations mm. of the whole of the tax um, administration system. So okay. they actually do quite well. But we would always like them to do better. And because of those two reasons that I just um, mentioned, it's really important to us that we're focused on that 20% or so that aren't lodging on time and work out why and try and help them. Well, I suppose that's still a lot of money, still a lot of assets, 20% is a... It is, Steve, yeah. Money sloshing around, not sloshing around the system, I should say. Yeah, and it is associated, and I I know we'll talk some more on it later, but Mm. um, usually people might have a good lodgement history and Mm. then they stop because they encounter a problem. (laughs) So they sort of hit a roadblock and don't know what to <laughs> do. Hard, don't try. Yeah, exactly. So we have quite a big lapsed lodger population as mm. well as just never lodgers. So yeah, that's yeah. why we really are keen to get onto those people early. You, you mentioned, which is interesting, about the top 100 funds. Uh, tell us more about that. What are, is it the, 
in assets held or yeah yeah it is exactly so this is a new program and i have had a lot of interest in it when i've spoken about it before and and uh, we're interested for, in that for the same reason, and that is that these funds um, start off with an entry point of about $40 million. $40 million? $40 million, gosh. and together they represent about $8 billion in assets, funds mm. under management. So that's a not insignificant number. No, that's great. And what we're really interested in is making sure that these really big SMSFs have actually accumulated that wealth within the regulatory framework and have complied with the law and doing so. Oh, right. And yep. I think, you know, everybody else is out there trying to do their best to do the right thing. And mm. I feel like we should be looking at these guys and making sure that they are also complying with the law in the same way that everybody else is. Course, so yeah. it's a new program. We've just completed our risk profiling of them. And uh, about a third, we're actually looking at um, doing some case work on. Okay. Mm. Yeah. And they're mostly seem to be playing within the rules? Yeah, so far, so, yeah. So far but okay. uh, there's no doubt that they're well advised and perhaps they um, play closer to the edge than mm. some others. But um, we're working with our colleagues in private wealth because a lot of them do sit within private wealth groups, oh, yeah. Um, yeah. quite big um, groups of entities. So we yeah. are working closely with those on a couple of cases at the moment. And as they progress, we'll definitely be looking to share more. Okay, yep, that's great. I, I know that um, uh, earlier this year you gave a speech about and part of that highlighted the uh, early release problem. Yeah. Um, can you tell us more about what the ATO can do to pre- prevent that or to, you know, subdue that Yeah, problem? so we, um, in 2012 was uh, the first time we introduced what we call our um, secure front door process. And this is because a legal early release most often manifests itself in people rolling money out of their APRA fund into an SMSF okay. where they can easily take it out of the bank account themselves. Oh, I see. Yeah. yeah. I know that in the last half of 2018, there was something like 12,000 new entries into that? Yep, that's right. So that's that's a big lot. It's a big to lot. Take care of. That's yeah. right. So we the the colloquially termed secure front door is actually a risk analytical model that right. we run yep. and uh, it sort of triages a number of risk factors to try and identify if someone is at risk of a legal early release. Right, right. And the types of things we look at are the um, trustee's individual compliance history. Have they kept themselves up to date with their own lodgements? Do they have any outstanding tax debts? Right. Um, we also look at the balance that they um, of their APRA fund they're potentially looking to roll over because we don't really think if someone's only got $10,000, for example, in their super, that there's really a good reason to be setting up an SMSF at that stage. Um, If there is a tax agent associated with the um, registration process, we also look at the tax agent to make sure that they are not an agent of a concern on our records who might be associated with giving, um, assisting SMSFs to set up when they perhaps shouldn't. Right. Yeah. So that's... um, that's the kind of sort of triage process. And there are other things we look at as well. But right. if it's flagged as high risk as a result of that analytical process, then we will interview the trustee. Really? Okay. Yeah. And uh, we ask them to, we if there's more than one trustee, we do that individually to try and ascertain if they really do understand what they're taking on and why they're doing it. And are they doing it for the right reasons, right. which is cause f- to plan for their long-term retirement. Yeah, of course. Um, and, you know, those interviews are really good because you do get a good sense of are they really um, – 
doing it for the right reasons Did you, or have not. Have you so far found anything untoward? Yeah, yeah. So um, these are holistic numbers because the other aspect to illegal early release is um, identity fraud. Oh. Um, so we do also um, track um, reported cases of um, stolen identity and mm-hmm. we make sure we check that at the same time when someone registers an MSF because obviously it's another easy way that someone can um, to, yeah, yeah. take someone's money as they impersonate them and then uh, roll over their um, like they use their ID with the APRA fund to credentialise themselves to roll over into their own bank account. Right, right. Yeah, yeah so that's course. another sort of aspect to it. So last year um, we uh, had about 40% um, we reviewed of those um, high-risk cases right. and that resulted in us, um, I would say, protecting about $100 million. So they were either identity fraud cases yep. or where we thought there was a really high risk of illegal early release. Well, why, why, what are the common reasons that people try these things? Yeah, um, there's probably two categories. Um, one is um, people who are vulnerable and are preyed upon by promoters and they are told that this is okay, mm. that, you know, if you, if you need some money to go on holidays, that this is an, I know a, a way, way around it. Yeah, yeah <laughs> this is a way you can do it. And uh, that that is sadly uh, not uncommon. Mm. And, and the other, even more sadly, I think, is... Um, to do with financial stress. And so it's generally when people are suffering from financial stress and other aspects of their life and they need some money. And again, they see this as potentially a way to sort of get themselves out of trouble in the well, short term. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Often people think um, that it might even be an existing SMSF and they think, oh, I'll pay it back once I get back on my feet. But of course, that's illegal and you can't take out your super for a current day need. No, no. Mm. When you mentioned promoter, is that always like a financial advisor or who are these promoters? Yeah. Um, all too often, uh, they are not registered financial advisors. And so this is the best advice I can give any SMSF trustee who's talking to someone about a financial advisor or someone that's representing themselves as a financial advisor is to go and check with ASIC if they are a registered financial advisor, a licensed financial advisor. Because there's no backup if they're not. There's nothing you can do That's right, Steve. And the two most recent cases that we um, have been looking at, they were both unregistered, um, I would call unregistered or unlicensed financial advisors, mm. so people representing that they were and uh, helping people set up SMSFs to access their money or to put it to an improper purpose. And okay. uh, that that's really leaves those poor people that have participated in schemes yeah. or access their money in a worse financial position than they would have been had they left their super alone. Just, yeah, let, let it be. What happened in, in these cases? I mean, has there been any action? Any yeah, yeah. So um, one of them um, was... We uh, immediately uh, took out an injunction against them uh, and that was our first promoter case that we actually took action this year on under the CISA Act and uh, that meant they could not um, induce, advise or assist someone to establish an SMSF. So that case is progressing through the courts. We're taking action against that promoter so I can't sort of say too much more. Oh, okay. I was going to ask who it was but that is all. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I mean because they may have been involved in a lot more cases than this particular one but of course... Uh, that's up to the courts. That, that's right. Yeah. Um, and, you know, we do take it very seriously because what happens is if you illegal early release is the money is taken out and assessed at your marginal rate. And that's uh, the whole uh, capital that you've taken out. Yeah. So you really are in a far worse position financially as a result of relying on that promoter's advice than um, you would be had uh, you 
hopefully checked in the first instance. The first license. Place, yes, yeah, if, if I can just mention, the other one was um, the action was taken by ASIC because um, oh. they were um, already monitoring this person oh, and so we worked closely with them and uh, by us collaborating, they actually managed to um, shut down the um, individual's operation. Okay. So yep. that was um, a really good outcome. That, that's good. Mm. I, I'd imagine identity fraud would be a little harder. I mean, that's uh, uh, what yeah. you do. Yeah, so um, the, the thing... If someone thinks their identity's been compromised, the the best thing they can do is obviously notify us straight oh, away. Right. Or um, if it's potentially they've got an APRA fund, notify their APRA fund. Or if it's um, you know real fraud where they've actually had their super stolen, of course they should notify the police. But we, right. we get reported to us, and we constantly track um, for all um, when any new SMSF is registered. We go to um, Austrac and we check um, if there's been any identity fraud reported to us, and also our internal holdings of identity fraud yeah, um, reported yeah. to us. So that um, immediately we then, if they had a new SMSF being registered, we would ring the trustee and say are you actually looking to set up an SMSF and roll over your money? Yeah. And, uh, you know, obviously in the cases of identity fraud, obviously the cancer is no, and then we just, that's it. We just yeah. shut it down shut and it down. obviously never okay. happens. Yeah. I, know that, I know that the um, uh, ATO website, uh, ato.gov.au forward slash scams has all the uh, contact details for yes. people out there. For and I also understand there's a really good um, not-for-profit organisation called ID Care, oh, right. and uh, they will give you advice what to do if you think that you have had your identity stolen. Okay. So um, that's another really good uh, resource for people. I think they can just Google ID Care. It's ID an Australian, New Zealand um, co- a corporate corporation together okay, for, to assist people. Um, Dana, earlier you mentioned uh, high-risk auditors. Uh, I'm interested to hear about that. Yeah, so as I mentioned before, I don't think perhaps um, people are aware that we co-regulate auditors, SMSF approved auditors. That's right. That's right. Yep, yep. So they kind of um, do everything at the beginning and everything at the end. So they set the exam, um, they maintain the registrations. Uh, oh, we right. do all the stuff in between. We monitor, make sure they're complying with the standards set by the um, Auditing Standards Board, oh, right, their professional yep. obligations. And then if we find problems, we refer them back to ASIC. And, and they ASIC will... has a stick to wield. Yeah, That's exactly yeah. right. Okay. So um, what we are, of course, focused on as part of our high-risk auditor program is to make sure that the auditors are performing um, an independent um, audit and an adequate audit. So are SMSFs getting the right level of um, competency applied in the performance of the audit, which is an annual obligation? And uh, that's obviously critical for us because it is the auditor we rely upon to report to us um, whether the SMSF is complying with all its regulatory obligations. So what we do is we do analyse our data and we look for things that we think are of indicate there's a risk and they would be things for example a non-exhaustive list but if uh, an auditor had a high volume of audits but a very low audit contravention report so they uh, might indicate if that was the correlation that they weren't actually finding all the contraventions that they should be Right. Another yep. one is big focus for us are low cost auditors, where we are concerned that they might be compromising audit quality mm. in order to keep costs down. So they're the kind of things that we correlate and check, and that would then identify the uh, auditors yeah. for a case audit by right. ourselves. I, I just had a thought. I mean, the, is, is it a problem for like offshoring of auditor services? Uh, is it still a problem, or is it? It's um, an interesting one that you you raise that. I've had quite a few auditors raise that with me when I've been out doing speaking on the circuit and uh, it is something that I think 
auditors are concerned about themselves, about whether the competency of those overseas Mm. outsourcing arrangements are actually delivering an adequate audit. So we have that. It's hard for us to identify that because it's not something that that we know per se. So I always say to those auditors, please report that to us if Mm. you see it because we would like to do a few um, assessments of those Eight, um, auditors who are using those outsourcing arrangements right. to just work out if we are happy with the level of um, quality, quality of those of orders. Yeah, because yeah. I know it is, it is a competitive, well, sort of a competitive market. People want to chase business, so yeah. you can understand how that how that comes about. But still, yes, it's a very competitive market. Yeah. yeah. Um, so co-regulation with ASIC began in 2013. It's been a few years now. Yeah. So we've um, over that time we've referred. Um, 148 auditors to ASIC, but that was as a result of 865 case reviews. Okay. Um, Last year alone, we referred 51, that's FY17, to ASIC. So that's quite a high number, and we have seen that number has been increasing over the last couple of years. And I do think that this reflects the concentration in that market that is occurring. And it is a really specialist job, and it requires a lot of... um, upkeep of your professional um, qualifications and knowledge and I I think it's just a factor that when we have written out to some of these auditors for example just recently we um, wrote out to about 100 auditors who hadn't done an SMSF audit for uh, five years and said do you really have you forgotten (laughs) are you doing any are you not doing any Mm. Uh, and and about um, quite a few of those voluntarily deregistered after that Um, so there's definitely um uh, I think an elevation in the in the level of um, knowledge that's required, yeah, yeah. and to keep that the upkeep of that is just getting a bit too hard. Of so, course, yeah, with all the developments anyway in the in the market. Yeah. yeah. So you also mentioned the top one hundred auditors actually in the earlier part of the podcast. Uh, can you tell us a little bit more about that group? Yeah. So of that fifty one, we referred to ASIC. It was only uh, two that were from our top one hundred population. Okay. And this is um, a really important population for us because that top 100 are actually responsible for auditing 31% of the SMSF population. Is that how you um, qualify top 100? Are they the the amount of audits that they do? Yeah, that's right. So um, high volume auditors basically. Uh, And I think the the average is around 500 um, um, funds that they audit. Some are a lot more, some are a bit less, but the average is around that. And um, why we sort of undertook a program of this is because if we can get assurance over the top 100, we are getting assurance that at least basically a third oh, of the, the audits yeah. Yeah, are being done to the standard we want. Okay. And um, we were really um, pleased to find that we're about halfway through that program. And as I said, we've only referred two to ASIC and they weren't for egregious behaviours or really poor things. One just had a few conditions imposed on them. Oh, right. So that yeah. might that's things like... Um, they might have to get peer reviews of some of their orders just to make sure they're maintaining their standards and we're awaiting the outcome of the other one. But I don't okay. anticipate that that will be a deregistration of them. It's more just a monitoring yeah. exercise. Sometimes it's more that if they know that things are being looked at, they say, oh, I've better get my act together here. Yeah, I think that's really true. I'm a big believer in that, Steve. So if people know that you're monitoring and looking at things, I think it's a natural um, motivation to sort yeah. of get up to the standards that we expect. One thing I have been reading about quite recently is the, um, uh, what's it called, the um, SMSF auditor number, misuse. Have people have been quoting numbers. But, and I think the ATO did a, a, a mail out in March, I think this year, yeah. but to, to, S, uh, no, to auditors saying, 
did you do this uh, uh, audit, etc., and found, I think, 1,400 instances of misuse of these uh, numbers. That's right. What's the details on that? Yeah, so <laughs> it was quite interesting. So... Um, when I first took on this role, um, we, we have an auditor stakeholder group that we consult quite regularly with and uh, quite a few of the speeches I made, the auditors were coming forward and saying they were really concerned that their auditor number, so the number they're registered with, was being misquoted on tax returns to um, hide that an audit had not been so done. So not their clients, someone else's? <laughs> not their clients. Oh and uh, so we used to say, well, you can email us and ask us for a list and you can check it. and. Mm. Um, they, they really um, felt very strongly about it. And so we investigated, so we went, well, why don't we just email them all the list every year? <laughs> so for the first year this time, we emailed all of our auditor population in March for the 2017 year, a yep. list of whose um, clients had been lodged using their number. Okay. So they were able to self-identify if there were SMSFs yep. with their number that they were not their clients. How, and how many auditors are there? Just there's um, about 6,000. Okay, right, okay. So um, the orders were great. So about half wrote back um, at this stage. We sort of assumed the ones that didn't write back were happy because right. they just felt there was nothing to report. But even of those half that wrote back, um, that's when we found that about 85% were okay, but um, 15% reported that there was what I call SAN, so that's the SMSF approved auditor number, oh, right. misuse. Yep. So that yep. they had not done that audit. And that was connected with about 625 tax agents, Steve. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah. Now, we take this really seriously, and so we've started investigating those. Um, we've already referred five tax agents to the Tax Practitioner Board yep. Um, yep. For, for doing this. And we have um, one case... Uh, that we have listed for criminal prosecution mm. where the tax agent took money for doing the audit and didn't, in fact, arrange for an audit Just to be done. Just grabbed a number. Yep. And even worse, um, as we've progressed since then, and I hope we'll be able to refer these for criminal prosecution as well, um, where they had actually forged the audit report huh. to pretend to the SMSF trustee that an audit had been oh, so done. the trustee didn't, was unaware of this? trustee didn't know. Okay. Well, so uh, it's, it's a really serious issue for yeah. us because um, that's who we're relying on to report regulatory breaches and, and tell the trustees if yeah. something's gone awry. And if the trustees can't rely the fact that what's being reported to them. They're often they're dealing with the tax agent. The tax agent often deals with the auditor. Oh, right. Yeah, um, yeah, it, yeah. it can be a real problem. So I always say to trustees, make sure you talk to the auditor yourself or read the audit report that you get yeah, and make yeah. sure you ring them if you want to clarify anything and make sure you understand what's going on. So this this March mail-out for the 2017 um, year, is it going to happen again or is it going to become a regular? Absolutely. Really? Um, okay. So the auditors were really pleased and given the level of um, incidents that we've discovered there, we will be. I hope it will drop off now that people are more aware that we're proactively following it up. So yeah. September this year we'll be following up obviously the 2018 uh, tax return has just been lodged yep. pretty much yep. for most SMSF. So we'll be following up our next mail out in September. September. So do you think September each year? or you, Yeah, uh, the, the auditors are saying that's a good time for them because okay. it's a bit quieter, whereas March is leading oh, into audit season. Yep. So, that's yeah, true. I think that will be about the right time. We'll get through the lodgement season and uh, follow up with yeah, the yeah. audit population. So that's, that's um, just brought to mind about the regulatory um, contraventions mm -hmm. that happen out there. Uh, what are some other things that uh, you're seeing in relation to the regulatory con uh, contraventions? 
We've found that the um, contraventions that are reported to us by auditors are pretty steady. That's always around, it's been about 2% of the population for about five years. That's a really low percentage, okay. uh, which I think is we should be proud of as an industry. Um, and it means that the vast majority of self-managed super funds are doing the right thing. Uh, what I also would like to just highlight, um, since we're talking about our risk management, it always sounds right, a yeah. bit doom and gloom, but uh, I really want to be a bit positive that nearly 50% of the SMSFs who are reported to us as having a um, contravention yeah. have already self-rectified oh. by the time um, that return is lodged and the audit report comes to us. Yeah, so. Yeah. We don't even need to do anything. So that's a pretty good number. So it is good. Yeah. if you think it's about um, it's about sixteen, seventeen thousand contraventions, but it's about half that of SMSF. So there are multiple contraventions often. So it's right. about eight thousand, four thousand basically self rectify before they even get to us. And then we're only really looking at that small population um, and what action needs to be taken. Yeah. Now that's true. in that space. Uh, the three most common uh, contraventions we've seen are loans to members, kind uh, of yeah. links back to that yep. financial stress um, conversation we had earlier. In-house assets, which means investing in um, related party assets. Right, yep. And uh, surprisingly, separation of assets, which means keeping your personal assets separate uh, from, from your self-managed super funds assets yep. and not making sure that if it's a property that the um, title's in the right name, for yeah, example, yeah. and things like that. It's surprisingly common. Yeah. I assume that a lot of that would be because we'll loans, in-house assets, and also not separating the assets. As, uh, they're in small business, so they're operating through the SMSF. That's right, yeah. Yeah. I can understand that. Yeah, and, and look, to be those, um, and again, when we contact those trustees, they're very willing to work with us, and um, most of the time we work with them to get them back on track and help them rectify whatever it is that they, the contravention that yeah. has occurred. Yeah. And uh, I think for uh, last year, so financial year 19, we only had to take what I would call strong proactive enforcement action, so a direction order to rectify or an enforceable undertaking or worst-case scenario disqualifying the trustee okay. if the behaviour is really poor um, right. and egregious uh, for less than 500 okay. SMSF. So that's a pretty good picture, I think. Can you tell me that some of the common issues that trustees uh, have, that uh, perhaps specific examples of the types of mistakes that trustees make? That would be handy. Yeah, so I'd probably um, sort of split them into um, two categories. One's that's set up and the other is once you're in the system and operating. So uh, at setup, as I've mentioned before, we have the secure front door process. Um, But even before that, I think there's a really big role for advisors to play and just making sure that SMSF trustees actually understand the legal obligations and the responsibilities they're taking on. Mm. So... ASIC recently uh, did a report just last year and uh, they interviewed a number of SMSF trustees and they found, um, loosely quoting the numbers, about one-third underestimated the time and the cost that it took to operate their SMSF. Okay, that's interesting. Yeah, and um, the Self-Managed Superfund Association also did a thought leadership piece last year and, uh, again, the, it was really quite interesting that it was about eight hours a month um, is what you need to spend as an SMSF trustee, just maintaining your investment strategy, maintaining the admin and trying mm. to keep up to date with um, legislative change and understanding yeah. how that impacted your SMSF. Okay. So I, I think um, that 
it, perhaps not a mistake, but a real lack of awareness often at the start of how big a job that they're taking on. Uh, so I think um, advisors, I, I think we call our front door, the secure front door, mm-hmm. they're like the gatekeeper yeah, yeah, <laughs> um, yeah. about whether really it is someone has the time and uh, it is the right thing for them to do. Yeah, yeah. Then you get to the stage of actually registering. And uh, what we often find here, which does risk flag you to us, is if someone hasn't really thought through that process and gone um, about it in a sort of professional uh, considered way, that there's a lot of risk flags that happen. So if you've got your, as I mentioned before, your personal tax obligations are outstanding, you haven't lodged your tax return, um, you've got outstanding debts with the ASIO. Mm. So again, just making sure that if this is really what you want to do, you really have to demonstrate to the ASIO that you've got all your obligations up to date and you're capable and to use the words of um, the law, a fit and proper person to actually look after and manage your retirement savings. Yeah, yeah, because it's a lot more money involved than the than usual yeah well. and that the the ASIC um, research was also very interesting um, because about one third had also when asked the question not thought about what would happen to their SMSF if something happened to them ah really like successional succession yeah, planning and so again that's a really I think common mistakes people set it up and it's all mm. good and they're all healthy and well and they haven't actually thought about what happens when I get to 70 or if you're the often there's an active member and a not active member what happens if the active member dies have they got in place a plan Mm. to succession plan or deal with that situation so that the other partner of the person generally doesn't have a nasty mess to deal with at that point in time and i always say it's you know not not a nice thing to talk about obviously it's it's something people don't like to think about but you really have to you have to and it's prudent and it's not a conversation you want to be having at that time of that life event, mm. what are you going to do with your SMSF? You really want to have planned beforehand yeah, what you yeah. want to do. And which is where the advisors can come in, the, in the professionals that you see when you're setting up an SMSF. Exactly. Right. So that tends to the sort of second part, which we've really touched on already. Um, yep. And I think the common mistakes we see is in the lodgement space. You know, as I mentioned, we have done quite a bit of um, sort of research into what happens. Um, and people do stop lodging. Uh, so that they do tend to be, they've had a good compliance history and it's definitely they hit some kind of hurdle. Now, that yeah. might be administrative matter. It might just be um, a regulatory contravention. And they just kind of bunker down and, and don't want to you know, deal with it or it seems too hard and so that's it's, when we really encourage people it's sort of amusing me that i just stop yeah. just walk away <laughs> yeah anyway. and and other times you know what we've discovered is um it, it's a lack again of understanding their obligations so when we went through our non-lodging our lapsed lodger population in particular last year um, we found it was things like oh we rang people and they were oh i was in pension phase i didn't realize i had to lodge a return oh, okay. now i'm in pension phase yeah. oh yes you do okay. <laughs> and uh, or Sadly, the active member had died and the um, remaining member didn't actually know they had an SMSF. Didn't, yeah, I think it was, was necessary. Yeah. So mm. so these are the situations that we see. Um, and again, we just, we've been writing out to all of those lapse lodges. Mm. Um, we wrote out to over 50,000 of them uh, this year right. to say, is your SMSF still operating? Is it not? Do you want to wind it up if that's the other reason? They mm. don't realise mm. they have to tell us <laughs> that it's lodged. Or if you've had a problem, use our voluntary disclosure service and get yep. back in touch. So yeah, that's yeah. the other big one. And the last one I've already talked a lot about, which is the annual audit, yep. um, making yep. sure you appoint someone early and get that done every year. So, so there are sort of um, problems that you've got to deal with across the board. Um, do you feel that there needs to be some change or improvement in the rules 
over the whole sector. There's obviously some problems that the people and the ATO are dealing with. Um, are there things that need to change or that could be changed for the better? Uh, look, I really feel... Um in light of sort of ASIC's research and what the Self-Managed Superfund Association has, there there is a real place for um, more education for trustees and oh, yeah. making them aware of um, that this is not a decision to be taken lightly. Yeah. Uh, it carries with a lot of obligations that you have to make sure they're met. So we've got... Um, lodging return, your annual audit, you have to have an investment strategy that you keep up to date all the time. Um, And you've also got potentially um, transfer balance account reporting you now have to deal with. So, you know, this is not a set and forget thing. It's not just something you can set up and maybe look at once a year. You you really have to be engaged. And and I think, you know, more education for trustees and accessible education would be a really great thing. So not a university-level pitched course where you're looking at... No, no, but um, there's always things that come up. Sorry, you just mentioned the um, transfer balance reporting. Yes. Um, If you could turn your attention to that, um, I mean, talking to practitioners and other SMSF professionals out there, you know, members of our association, the consensus seems to be that... um, since transfer balance reporting started, uh, overall, everyone's okay about it. It all seems to be working. Um, what do you, as the regulator, mm. how do you see the uh, the change? Yeah, so we have just finished this year our first annual cycle of okay, transfer balance yep. account reporting. So mm. I think it almost feels like it's been around forever. <laughs> <laughs> sort of. Um, because people have been thinking been about it. About and dealing with, yeah, exactly. Mm. Mm. Um, but... I think the industry really has adjusted to what I would call event-based reporting. So not just your annual reporting, but now we have a cycle that you need to report when an event happens, and that's obviously at the 1 million threshold at the moment. Mm. But um, I think um, we're trying to make that easier for agents. So we have just introduced an electronic online um, transfer balance account report that you can lodge through Online, which I think has been well received, Mm. Uh, as well as, of course, you you can lodge them through your digital service provider as well. With the electronic lodgement, what's the the good thing about that? What's the advantages? Yeah, so... It does, um, I think, make it uh, less likely that you'll have an error in your report, your transfer balance account report, um, because it steps you through the process if you use the electronic lodgement form. So obviously, if you don't have an error, that means the form doesn't get suspended. And if a form is suspended with us, then we have to um, go and try and work out what's happened and contact the agent. And there's reverse workflow for everyone. So I think that's one really um, big advantage. The other is, of course, um, electronic lodgement is a lot quicker. So if you use an electronic logical form, it processes straight through our systems as opposed to um, the spreadsheet, which was um, previously used by some tax agents. And that spreadsheet gets me to my last advantage, which actually had to be re-keyed by us. Oh, dear. So um, not, you know, just a a case of perhaps um, errors at the input end, but errors on the ASIO's part where we have to manually re-input data. So that's never a useful way to be dealing with things. And uh, the new form is pre-filled. So often uh, things like uh, ABNs will be pre-filled. So they will be pre-filled and they're clear examples where transposition errors can easily um, stall the process. So I think there's some really good advantages through using that ASIO online form. Is there any sort of guidance that I can mention to people? Yes, there is. There's um, a sort of video that you can go on our um, ATO TV. It's called um, Transfer Balance Cap Online T-Bail Lodgements for Agents, which steps oh. you through that new uh, online form. That's right. It's mm. a t- t- just for listeners, a tv.ato.gov.au. 
www.gov.gov.au. Sorry, that's the one. Yeah. Uh, under the super tab, I think it's um, that video is dated the second of May. Um, with the new event-based reporting, have there been any issues though? Now you've had a year's worth to to look at it. What are the issues that have come out? Yeah, so you're quite right. <laughs> um, the look, any first year, we understand uh, that there's going to be a need to get familiar with a new system. Yeah. So that was always understood. And we've always said that the first year, first cycle, which is the year that's just ended, yeah. uh, we would just take an educative and supportive approach if people were late or had errors. And um, we have done that to the extent that we can. Now, unfortunately, um, there are legal requirements that impact on members that can't be stopped even though we can apply the um, administrative concessions around oh, lodgement. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. No, so if an re- event's not reported to us, then the, um, the transfer balance um, cap, for example, isn't up to date. And right. so that might mean uh, notices get issued to members when perhaps they shouldn't. Right. So the classic one, um, which I will mention since you, you've uh, <laughs> raised it, is um, commutation authorities. So uh, we have yeah. seen a high level of re-reporting through yeah. the T-bar and approximately 53% of our commutation authorities that we've issued to SMSFs this year yeah. have been revoked due to receiving amended reporting. Oh, no. Okay. So that's pretty high. I mean, the good news is that people did get on the front foot and come back to us and re-report or give us the information that we needed so that the member didn't have to comply with that commutation authority when they didn't need to. Right, okay. So that's the sort of upside of it. Um, But I think, you know, as people get um, more familiar with the system and understand they need to report uh, information to us in real time. So, yes, it's a quarterly um, deadline, but people can report earlier. And we would encourage people to report earlier okay, because yeah. in case we, there's something untoward there. That's yeah. right. Because if they have made a commutation and we're not aware of it, you might be displaying on our systems to us so that you're in excess of your transfer balance cap when in fact you're not. Mm, okay. So yeah. it's really, really important uh, that I think SMSF trustees understand that we our data is only as good as what they tell us. And if they wait till lodging the annual return, if they're below that one million that means their data is out of date with us for potentially, you think, it could be up to 18 months. Right, okay, yeah. yeah so yeah. that that's the biggest thing I say. Get get in um, touch with us, report um, when events happen and you yeah. will have better data and you will have less work to deal with because we won't issue notices and, and erroneously. Especially while the concessions are up, you know. That's right. That's, so take advantage um, of that. in light of that, rather high number mm-hmm. <laughs> for the current year. I, a few cautionary messages, if okay, I may. Okay, cool. yes, please. <laughs> yeah. Um, please make sure that your uh, exempt current pension income claims and your minimum pension payments align to what you have reported to us through the T-bar. Oh, uh, yeah. Okay, we don't want to have a misalignment in your tax return to what's been reported to us via the T-bar. Uh, we have made commutations that's great that they've been reported to us, but make sure your documentation is right. in place and is correct and that the payments to members are correctly characterised. So is it a pension payment? Is it a commutation and a lump sum? Okay, they yeah. clearly have very different impacts on your transfer balance cap. One does, one doesn't. Yeah, of course. So making sure that you've actually characterised what you mean that payment to be appropriately and documented is really important. Right, yep. Um, and the last message I would really like to focus on is in relation to those commutation authorities. So if we don't get information uh, 
before the date of that commutation authority needs to be complied with to enable us to revoke that commutation authority, Mm -hmm. we have no discretion to deal with it. The member must comply with the commutation authority. Mm -hmm. And that has really severe consequences, even apart from taking out um, money that you perhaps didn't need to or want to. The first is the pension that that um, amount relates to ceases to be in the retirement phase. And that oh, means no. you lose your exempt current pension income yep. um, exemption. So that's 0% tax rate. And that means you lose it from the start of that year. Oh, really? All the way back? All Gosh. the way back. Oh, and even worse, it can never be reinstated. Really? So okay. you, basically, if you want to um, have your pension uh, assets that support that pension be at the 0% tax rate, you have to fully commute that tainted pension and start <laughs> a new one. Start another one with yeah. less assets, I assume. Yes, so yeah. that's right. And uh, even worse, you don't get a debit to your transfer balance cap for that commutation. Right. So it really is a double whammy. It's a nasty sting in the tail yeah yeah. Uh, so if you get a commutation authority get on the phone to the ato straight away if you think it's wrong right um or comply with it straight away if you need to yeah yeah it's a consequence of not a very very severe Mm. step tread carefully is there guidance uh, is there anything on that ato tv yeah yeah there there is um steve so there's um a transfer balance cap i think it's entitled Commissioners Commutation Authorities Webinar um, on our ATO TV website. And I highly encourage anyone that's dealing with commutation authorities okay, to so watch it. tv.ato.gov.au, that address again, it's under the super tab. Um, yes. Commissioners Commutation Authorities Webinar. Okay. All right, Donna, um, that's great. Thank you very, very much for talking to us today. Um, it's been very helpful, very informative. Uh, there's a few things I didn't know and that I'm sure our members are glad to hear about. Um, hopefully we can chat again at some time in the future. Yeah, thanks, Steve. I'd really like to come back and maybe give you an update on where some of our programs are at later Absolutely. on. Absolutely. That'd be great. Excellent. Great. Thank you. Lovely. It's been a pleasure.